Hey, it's uh, starting to look like Christmas at our house, for sure. Uh, This week, we started getting all those Christmas cards flooding in from our friends and neighbors, uh, many people right here in this room, so thank you for those. I love getting those cards and seeing the the faces of the beautiful families that we love so much, but we, we start getting all those cards, and I start to feel guilty because we haven't done Christmas cards in four or five years, and it seems, the reason is, it seems like... Um, we have not taken a single family photo all year. And so we had uh, 52 weeks this year, just like you guys have, and um, seven days in every week and 24 hours in each of those days, something like 525,000 minutes this year. And for some reason, our family hasn't taken 15 of them to take our own picture so that we could put it on a Christmas card. And so for those of you who do that, Thank you. God bless you. I love you guys. I'm so glad to see your pictures and your kids have grown up so much and they look great. So I'm sorry that we don't do that. Why can I not snap one lousy picture of our family and put it on a Christmas card? But we get the Christmas cards, but I love, the ones I love are the Christmas letters. You know the ones I'm talking about? The humble brag letters? You know, the ones where you're you know, bragging on your child and what they do. You know, Johnny is first in his class at med school again this semester, and Jenny just won The Bachelor, right? And we just got back from three weeks on the French Riviera, and we're all nice and tan, and they've got their smiling face in the picture. And I just want to go hide under a blanket and eat a half a gallon of mint chocolate chip ice cream, quite frankly, because we haven't done amen. That's a great place for an amen right there. But the letters I love the most, these are the ones I love the most, are the ones that make fun of themselves, have you seen the letters that make fun of the Christmas letters? The ones where people are able to, you know, graciously poke fun at their own family? I found some of these this week. These are actual letters from actual people, as David Letterman used to say. If they weren't, could I do this with them? These are actual letters from actual people. I found these. Let me just tell you what I'm talking about, okay? This is one. Uh, Nancy got an A- minus last semester, which really brought down her grade average. College students, you can relate to that, I'm sure. It seems that since she's been in Europe, three or four kings and a couple of prime ministers have been falling in love with her, and she's a little bit distracted. Everyone has distractions, but you can't let your schoolwork go to pot. Uh, She's found a new hobby, by the way, doing crossword puzzles in ancient Greek. It sure brings back memories. I used to love doing them at her age. Uh, This one says, uh, we're really feeling badly for Matt. As you know, in September, he began college at Northridge, majoring in journalism. Well, anyhow... He won the Pulitzer and then was disqualified because you have to have two semesters of college. You think they would have checked that before they made the announcement. Uh, This one is from the Rutledge family. Mrs. Rutledge is a stay-at-home mom and apparently likes to poke fun of her shopping experiences. So this one says, February, many trips to Safeway, Walmart, and occasionally Albertsons. Although, if you remember from last year, I don't care for the shopping carts at Albertsons very much, so I don't shop there very often. An evening trip was taken across town to Christy's sister Karen's house to deliver a birthday present. Um, Most of our shopping was done at Walmart this month. Their prices are quite low and affordable for us to purchase the foods that we like to eat. Highlights from this month include a trip to the Chahalas Walmart with Christy's friend Michelle. The southern Walmarts really have a better selection and a more casual clientele. She says, it's refreshing to see people who, who are that comfortable in their own skin and spandex. This one's my favorite. This is from the Allisons. Keeping it real, it says. Keeping it real. Um, He's talking about his wife. He says, uh, she's a funny woman. A few months ago in the kitchen, I pulled her close, looked her right in the eyes, and said tenderly, have I ever told you that the older you get, the prettier you become? Oh, guys, there's a way to earn points right there. Stacy said, have I ever told you that the older you get, the less you can see? (laughs) 
She's a fun and funny woman. I recently told Stacy that I never want to depend on machines or fluids to keep me alive. That's when she took away my computer and my coffee maker. <laughs> to be fair, I think that most Christmas letters aren't really bragging as much as they're wanting people to believe that we're happy. You know what I mean? I, I, it seems like everyone sounds so happy in their Christmas letters, right? Even if it's been a rough year, they'll say something like, hey, I know times have been hard, but at least we have each other. You know, at least we still have our health. And for some reason, at Christmas time, most of us feel the need to put on a happy face, don't we? Now, Christmas is a happy time for a lot of people, but, but for others, it can be the hardest time of year. You know, Christmas can increase stress due to the financial demands and expectations. You feel the need to give a better gift than you gave last year. You need to surprise your kids more. You need to surprise your parents more. You've got to give a better gift than your brother or your sister did. Now, all your kids' friends are getting new iPads this year because theirs are two generations ago. They're so 2012, you know, and your kids see that. They see what their friends are getting, and they know that. You know, for some people, the holidays can magnify somebody's sense of loneliness and loss. And it's hard because all the parties we're supposed to go to and the events we're supposed to attend, and every time we go to a family gathering, they're going to ask, hey, are you dating anybody? Are you seeing anyone? How come Charles Manson can get married and you can't, you know? (laughs) So we put on the face that we keep in a jar by the door, right? And we go to these parties. But I know, now I know for some people, Christmas makes them happy. Because they love this time of year, and they love the gifts, and they love the snow. And, and if you're in that category, that's awesome. I love Christmas too. But if you're in the other category, the category that doesn't like Christmas, well, it kind of makes you sick just thinking about those other people, doesn't it? But regardless of whether this time of year makes it harder or easier to feel happy, everybody's got their problems. Everybody has sources, don't we, of unhappiness in our lives. And at Christmas as a holiday... I mean, at least the way we celebrate it today in the United States in 2014, it, it can't really do anything about that. I mean, sure, it can make you happy in the short term, but it doesn't do anything to address the root of the problem. But what if, what if this Christmas we could experience something that could change the way we view our sorrow? What if we could look at something that would help us turn our sorrow into joy? And we're in week two of this series that we've called The Light Has Dawned. And it's taken from this verse in Isaiah 9, which several hundred years before the birth of Jesus predicted that Jesus would come. And it says this, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You know, if you read the Old Testament in the Bible, you'll see that all of the Old Testament points to this light points to this one who was to come and restore all things and renew all things. And we believe that this light is Jesus, that Jesus, who was born 2,000 years ago, is the light of the world. That's what Scripture teaches us. And and so in John 1, 4, we see this. We saw this last week. This is just review. But it says, in him, in Jesus, right, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. What you need to remember is that light is so powerful that there's no amount of darkness that can overcome light. You know this if you're a kid or if you've ever been a kid. If you've got one of those glow-in-the-dark toys, you know that you hold up to the light and then you take it into a dark room so that you can see it glow. Well, you know if you do that, if you take it into the bathroom, if there's even the smallest amount of light streaming under the door, you won't be able to see it glow, right? You won't be able to see it because there's, this light will overcome the darkness in that room. 
Or if you've ever taken a tour of a cave. Anybody ever taken a cave tour? If you go to Mammoth Cave or one of the big caves, you go down in the bowels of the cave and the guide takes you down in there and then they uh, get you all in a circle and they turn off all the lights. Have you seen this? Turn off all the lights and it gets pitch black. You can't see anything. And you sit there for a minute and you let your eyes try to adjust and you still can't see anything. And then the guide will like light one match and it lights up every corner of the cave, right? Because there's no amount of darkness that can overcome light. Well, Scripture tells us Jesus is the light of the world. God sent his Son, and in him was life. The thing that matters most is Jesus. He is the source of our purpose. Uh, He is the source of our meaning and our significance and our satisfaction. He comes into the world as light into our life. And where light appears, darkness is gone. Darkness must flee. And so last week, if you were here, Kevin talked about the darkness of anxiety and how there can be so much anxiety caused around the holidays because we have so many events to attend and so many gifts to buy and there's financial stress and we just get a little bit nervous about the whole thing and how anxiety is like a dark cloud that hovers over our lives for some of us at Christmas and that Jesus can change that because he comes as light. He can drive out that darkness. When we put our trust and our faith in him, the darkness of anxiety can't remain. It's replaced by his light. Well, today I want to talk about the sorrow and sadness that for some of us, I mean, let's face it, it can be present all year round, but For some reason, it can be magnified at Christmas. And what I want to do today is see how the light of Jesus, if we allow it, how the light of Jesus can transform this sadness into joy for us. And I want to take a look at a story from Scripture that will help us illuminate that. And so if you have your Bibles, open them to Luke chapter 1. If you have a smartphone or a tablet or something that you read your Bible on, go ahead and get that out. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can pick up one of these Um, There should be one on the floor somewhere around you. If you don't own a Bible, if you don't have one at home, take that one home with you. That's our gift to you today. We want you to be able to read along with us. Luke chapter 1. We're going to read today a portion of the story of Mary. Mary was the mother of Jesus. In fact, even if you've not been around church, if you know nothing about Scripture, you know two things about Mary. Uh, One, she was the mother of Jesus. And two, she had a little lamb. Uh, Two is not from Scripture. So we're going to look at number one instead, but, but let's look at the scene before we read a bit of this story. Luke 1, verse 26, it says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, if you weren't here last week, we talked about this last week, Elizabeth is a cousin of Mary. She is advanced in age, did not think she could get pregnant, and an angel appeared to Elizabeth and said, You are going to have a son, and you will name him John. He became John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, as we know. And so that was what we talked about last week. But in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, so she's pregnant, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. Nazareth is a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So Nazareth is a small town, first century Israel, and it is a dark time in Israel when this story takes place. It had been generations since Israel was a nation of its own. You know, so many times when we read the Old Testament, it talks about the nation of Israel. Well, at this time, um, a lot of Israel is scattered. What's left, the remnant of Israel, is um, basically an enclave in the Roman Empire. And so it's being ruled by Rome. King Herod the Great ruled over the Jewish people. Uh, There's only one problem with that. Herod the Great, he wasn't great. Dude was a psycho. Uh, He had some of his family killed to consolidate power. Um, He ruled uh, with an iron fist over the area of Judea. In fact, um, 
Herod wasn't a, really a Jew at all. He was born in an area called Edom, which is just south of Judea. He moved to Rome at age 27, where he quickly gained favor with the Roman government, and they sent him back to Judea to rule over these people. And uh, not only was he merciless, I mean, he had many of the Roman soldiers at his, uh, at his beck and call, and they occupied Israel. They frequented Nazareth and other towns around there. They were brutal toward any person that got in their way. It was also a tough time financially for the people in Israel. The people, uh, because they were under the rule of the Roman government, they were subject to the tax collectors of the Roman government, and Rome was taxing them sometimes at as high as a 90% tax rate. So you work, you earn $10, uh, Rome's going to take nine, you get to keep one. Congratulations, here's your paycheck for the week. And so it's a tough place. It was, Israel was a pretty sorrowful place. Well, while the nation as a whole suffered under Herod's rule, even more in Nazareth, you know how it is in a small town. Uh, when the economy's bad, people who are in small towns tend to feel it the most. And archaeologists tell us that Nazareth may have been about 150 people that lived in Nazareth is all. And so it, it, and it wasn't this quaint little charming town with the nice shops and the bed and breakfast either. It was a hole. I mean, Nazareth was a hole, so much so that years after the first Christmas, a man by the name of Nathaniel, who would eventually become one of the 12 uh, apostles of Jesus, Nathaniel uh, said snidely, really, can anything good come from Nazareth? This is the reputation that it had. There was nothing special about this place. But it was near Galilee. It was about four miles from a Roman garrison where the soldiers would stay. So some archaeologists believe that Nazareth may have had, even with 150 people, may have had a thriving red light district, that the soldiers would go there on their weekend passes. And so this is the kind of place we're talking about with Nazareth, all right? And so here's Mary, likely a teenager, but may have been as young as 12 or 13, probably somewhere in that 12 to 16 range. She was engaged to a man named Joseph. It wouldn't have been uncommon at that time for someone that young to have been engaged and we don't know much about her. Your scripture doesn't tell us much about her. Does she have more sorrow in her life than most of the people in Nazareth? Does she have less sorrow in her life? We don't know. But she's living in this backwoods town. And I think it's safe to say that she shares in the humiliation and the rejection of her people. But then one day, this happened. Luke 1, 28. The angel... Gabriel, that God sent to her, the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. This is how Mary found out. And she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Now, I have to tell you that angelic visits, like now, <laughs> weren't that common back then. 
We, we see six of them, six appearances of an angel as we read the entire Christmas story. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, what we call the Gospels, you'll see six appearances of angels to the people in that story. But outside of this, outside of this one particular event, they're very, very rare, almost non-existent. And the angel, this angel, Gabriel, we know this is one of the few times where the Scripture gives us the name of the angel, this angel says to Mary, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And God is with you, and you're going to have a baby, and the baby will be the Messiah. Now put yourself in Mary's shoes for a minute. Right? Just take yourself back. Just pretend you're her. The scriptures tell us that she's a virgin. A couple of questions are probably coming to mind, right? How is this possible? Maybe number one. I mean, she's had seventh grade health class. She's read Our Bodies Ourselves. You know, she knows how this whole thing works. She and Joseph haven't been messing around. I'm not supposed to be pregnant. I'm supposed to be planning for a wedding. I haven't even picked out all my bridesmaids yet, and now I'm going to go have to alter the dress. Okay, so once she's over that hurdle, there's another question that comes to mind. How could it be possible for someone like me, like this teenage girl from Nazareth, this backwoods town to be chosen as the mother of a king, as the mother of the king, you know, the savior of the world. How can that be possible? God is going to bring light to the world through me? I mean, how can this be? Well, I love Mary's response back to verse 38. What does she respond? She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And basically, yes, Lord, you can use me. So if you follow the story from here, the angel leaves Mary and goes off to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And, and, and or Mary goes off to visit her cousin Elizabeth, and she tells someone what happens. She has to tell somebody, right? And if you're Mary, you're probably not ready to tell Joseph yet, because what's he going to say? Um, most likely, you're not ready to tell your parents yet. This is the first you've heard of it, and it's from an angel. But remember, the angel told uh, Mary that Elizabeth was pregnant. She goes, ah, there's somebody that might be able to relate to me. So she goes to see Elizabeth, and look at her response. Look at Mary's response, starting in verse 46. We're going to skip down just a little bit. And Mary said... My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful. Now, this translation says Mary said all that, but it's more commonly believed that Mary sang all that. We, we sometimes call this Mary's song, or it's sometimes called uh, the Magnificat. Now, you may hear that word Magnificat and think, is that some kind of feline superhero, Magnificat, uh, to the rescue, or is that, you know, is that underdog's arch enemy? No, the Magnificat is a song. It's a song of joy that Mary sang. And what you see is at the middle of this sorrow and sadness... You know, in the middle of a dark and sorrowful time in her nation and in her home, Mary goes from sorrow to joy. Do you get that? She responds with joy. Now, some of you might say, well, of course, it's, it's good news. She's pregnant. She's going to have a baby. And I think it's okay to assume that there was some level of enthusiasm with Mary, knowing that she was going to be a mom. But don't forget, 
This baby, as great as he was going to be, was going to create more problems in Mary's life, not fewer. You know, what, what would Joseph do? What would he say? What were people from the community going to say behind her back? You know, how would they treat her? This is a tough culture. They didn't really smile upon pregnancy outside of wedlock. And besides, it's a small town. Anybody from a small town in here? Raise your hand if you're from a small town. If you're from a small town, if you get in trouble, who knows? Everyone, right? Everybody's going to find out. And think about this. Just think about this in the light of Jesus' life. From this small town, everybody knows what happened with Mary and Joseph from now on. As Jesus grows up, everybody's going to know how Jesus came about. They're not going to know maybe the real story, but they're going to know what it looks like from the outside. This is the life that Mary is presented with. I think she's old enough, mature enough to realize the challenges that were ahead of her. But regardless of her circumstances, regardless of the uncertainty, she responds with joy. So where is this joy coming from? Because I think it gives us an indication of where we can find joy when we're in the midst of sadness. Well, I'll give you a hint. I believe her joy, at least in part, at least the beginning of it, flowed from a part of the story that we might quickly overlook. It's, it's Luke one twenty eight when the angel says to her, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And so if you grew up Catholic or you have ties to the Catholic tradition, you may believe that this is a greeting reserved especially for Mary. In fact, many in that tradition celebrate uh, Mary as something more than a humble servant chosen by God. Remember in her song, she says, I am just a humble servant, right? But many in the Catholic tradition celebrate her as something more than that. She's venerated in the Catholic church. But the Greek word that's used there, the Greek word for highly favored is at its root, this word, it's the word kerito. Kerito, all right? Kerito, at the root of kerito is charis, which is the Greek word for grace. It really means grace. Now, this version of the word is, uh, you can see, kerito has a very common English word that is derived from it. Can you see what that is? I hear somebody whisper it. Charity, right? What do you do to earn charity? Nothing. You don't earn charity, right? Charity is a gift, Right? Well, this word, this uh, same root as grace, often translated as great, but this actual word is only used one other place in Scripture that I know of, and it's in Ephesians 1, 5, and 6, where the Apostle Paul writes, God chose us, he's talking to Christians, God chose us as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, grace which he has freely given, kerito, right? Grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves, In other words, I don't think you can read this passage from Luke 1 and conclude that Mary found favor with God because she was different or better than anyone else. The angel says to Mary, you are receiving grace. Like You are receiving a gift. And and gifts are really gift. When a gift's really a gift, it's free, right? You and I don't do anything to deserve a gift. If you do something to deserve it, it's a reward. It's not a gift. Gifts are not rewards. They're gifts. And so the angel is saying, Mary, you are a recipient of God's grace. The Lord is with you. See, I believe that that greeting is the beginning, at least, the seed, okay, of where her joy comes from. And so what is joy? If we're going to talk about going from sorrow to joy, what is joy? Is it happiness? Well, if you're new to Christianity, you may not know that joy and happiness are two different things, and maybe this doesn't make sense to you. But even if you grew up in a church, you may have heard preaching or heard songs, maybe, that led you to believe that joy and happiness are the same thing. So, for instance, you ever heard this song that goes, uh, at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light? 
and the burdens of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am what? Happy all the day. Really? Once you find Christ, you're always going to be happy? Because if that's true, I'm a complete failure. Well, no. It's easy to mix these up. The words joy and happiness are often interchanged, but they aren't really interchangeable. So here's the definition. These are in your notes if you want to follow along. Happiness is what we feel when something good happens. Happy things create happiness. When your child does well at school, you're happy. You get a kiss from your sweetheart, you're happy. When the Patriots lose on Sunday, you're happy, right? Good things happen, you get happy. You can say an amen there if you want. But joy is different. All followers of Christ should have joy. Joy is one of what Galatians 5 calls the fruit of the Spirit. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. So what is joy? Well, joy is a deep sense of well-being regardless of our circumstances. So happiness comes out of our circumstances. Joy flows from our soul. It's a deep sense of well-being regardless of our circumstances. That's what the light of Jesus can do for us. The the light comes into our lives. It changes our sorrow to joy. And Jesus won't change our sorrow to happiness, but we can still have joy in the midst of sorrow. See, even Jesus himself was a great example of this. The Bible tells us, Isaiah 53 says that Jesus was a man of many sorrows. But in both Luke 10 and John 15, it says that he was full of joy. A man of sorrows, full of joy. It's a very difficult time of year for some people. I know some of you are facing very difficult challenges in your lives. And Christmas seems to be the time for some reason where those challenges get magnified. And even up through New Year's, we kind of reflect on the difference between the life that we expected and the life that we've been given. And we can see the gap there. And Christmas is a time when we feel our losses the most. The loss of a marriage, the loss of a parent, the loss of a child, the, the loss of a hometown if you've recently changed jobs or schools. And then you add to that the challenges of winter where it's, it's cold, it's icy, it gets dark at 3.30, and even when it's daylight, it's never really sunny. Right? How can you not be sad in that? How can you not have some sorrow in that? I mean, how dark would winter be without the promise of Christmas? How bleak would it be? But no matter what we're going through, we can find joy in Jesus. We can find joy in what he thinks about us. We can find joy in his presence in us. We can find joy as we understand his desire to work through us. You know, what God did for Mary, he can do for you. Whoever you are, whatever troubles or sorrows you're going through, no matter what your struggle is right now, the joy Mary found can be revealed to you too. And so just look at the greeting that the angel gave to Mary. And I think what we can do is we can find three things in just the last couple minutes here. We can find three things in this greeting to Mary that, that should bring us joy, that can encourage us today. Number one is this. You are favored by God. You are highly favored by the creator of the universe. He is a creator on a grand scale, a scale that even now our scientists and astronomers are just beginning to wrap their arms around how big the universe is that God created. But he's also a personal God. You know, Psalm 139, 14 says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Matthew 10, 30 says, even the very hairs of your head are numbered. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells of a God who loved you so much that he took his son, God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him might become the righteousness of God, that you were so worthwhile to God that he sent his own son 
to become sin and die for you. And 1 John 4.16 says it this way, And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Well, if God thinks all that about me, how come I'm not happy? God's favor and presence are not meant to bring us happiness in the world. They're meant to bring us joy. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. You will have trouble. Trouble is not optional. All right? It's going to come. But joy is possible because joy comes from him. You'll find that joy in your life as you realize that you are favored by God. And that 2,000 years ago, he sent his son in whom all things were created and without whom nothing was created that has been created, John 1 says, sent that son to this earth for you. He sent his son because he loves you. Do you believe that? Are you willing to choose to believe that? You are favored by God. Number two is this. God is with you. If you are in Christ, he is with you. He sent his presence to live inside of you so that you will never have to go through life alone. You don't have to go through your present circumstances alone. You don't have to go through financial struggles alone. You don't have to fight the cancer alone. You don't have to struggle in your marriage alone. You don't have to go through your loneliness alone. You don't have to go through Christmas alone. Isaiah 41, 13 says, For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Where do you need God's help in your life? Why don't you tell him right now? Deuteronomy 23, 14 says, the Lord moves about in your camp to protect you and deliver your enemies to you. So many times when our circumstances get tough, we, we ask God to pull us out of them. But maybe instead of pulling us out of our circumstances, God wants to walk through them with us. So you're favored by God. God is with you. And number three is this. He has a plan for your life. God has a plan for your life. He wants to use you. He wants to use these circumstances you are facing. He wants to use your daily encounters. He wants to use your generosity. He wants to use your testimony and your response to people who are hurting. God sent light into the world in Jesus Christ. He wants to reflect that life through your life for his glory and for the sake of others. Will you let him turn your sorrow to joy. Here's the key. Here's where your joy can begin. Look at Mary's response to the angel in verse 38 again. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. You know, Mary could be maybe the most unexpected person to be used. An unmarried teenage girl from a hick town in Galilee. She brings no credentials I mean, no pedigree, no special skills that we know of. She lives on the fringe of a nation, on the fringe of an empire. She has nothing on her resume except her availability and her willingness to be used. God brought light into Mary's life, but get this, he didn't do it for her glory, but for his glory. Not so people would worship Mary, but so that they would worship her son, Jesus. Not so that anyone would be drawn to her, but so that all could find their way back to him. And what you'll find, I think, in your life is that the greatest, purest, truest joy becomes not in boasting of your accomplishments, but in shining the light of Jesus, reflecting his light to others. You know, your greatest joy can come not in Jesus giving you everything you need, but when you realize that Jesus is everything 
you need. You're favored by him. He is with you. He has a plan for your life. Would you pray with me? God, I'm so thankful for that truth that the angel spoke to Mary. I'm thankful that we know that that applies to us too, that, that, that you love us, you favor us, that you have a plan for us, and God, that you will be with us. We know, we just love that your son would be called Emmanuel, God with us, that you chose to leave heaven and come to earth for us. And for those of us who are in Christ, who've made that decision to put Christ at the center of our lives, God, we just praise you that you did that that you made a way, you made a way for us to find our way back to you. And Lord, for people here who have maybe never made that decision, would you just encourage them this week that there is a way to turn sorrow to joy, that there is a savior waiting for them, that he wants to take them by the hand and lead them and help them through their circumstances, God, that your son Jesus came to live and die for them too. We thank you and we praise you for that this Christmas in Jesus' name. Amen.